Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Woke up this morning to the news that Chuck Yeager had died, one of the seminal figures in American history, the first person to break the sound barrier of very, very cool life. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. And of course, you know Chuck Yeager from the movie The Right Stuff, where he was played by Sam Shepard, right? Sure, of course. <laughs> <laughs> wow, not pop culture mavens on this programming. Okay, let's begin. How is Ohio clearing up the confusion about its daily coronavirus cases after a month of unreliable numbers? Laura Johnston, this one was baffling because for months we were getting numbers that we thought were sound and good. And then about a month ago, Mike DeWine announced, yeah, the numbers, they're a mess because we have a whole backlog that don't fit in. And so all of a sudden we had a day with 13,000 cases and another day with 8,000 cases. And it just turned the whole thing on its head. So why was that and how is it being fixed? Yes. So today, starting today, public health officials are going to stop making the extra calls to verify coronavirus cases that are positive through antigen testing. That's been the big holdup um, in these kind of asterisk on the daily numbers. And um, DeWine announced this policy in mid-November, but said it had been underway for two months that they were having to call all of these extra tests and check on them because the antigen tests are not as reliable as the PCR tests. Well, that's stopping today. Um, under a new ruling from the CDC that says they don't have to. And they just say that it was unsustainable. They couldn't keep up. So we're going to keep, we're going to expect a big spike in cases reported today. All these positive antigen cases that haven't been verified before will be counted as new cases. And that's going to come in one big lump today. Um, DeWine has said that on average, about 12,500 antigen tests are performed every day with about 700 of those coming back positive. So I'm not sure exactly how big this number is going to be, but it is going to be really out of whack. But that's it. After today, we'll be able to say it's apples to apples. I, I do want to point out, we did poke holes in this whole way of counting last week. I hope that had something to do with this. This became Looney Tunes because you really could not trace the trend. I mean, and conspiracy theorists would have argued they did it on purpose because they don't want you to know how bad it was. It's just it's good to be getting back to a daily apples to apples comparison. Yeah, the antigen tests may be less reliable. But if you get antigen tests every single day, at least you're comparing them to the previous days that there's some kind of steady number. So we'll be able to compare where we are. Yeah. It's good news. Go I was just going to say, you know, we're, we're routinely seeing 10,000 a day. So you wonder with these antigen tests coming in, even though it's just going to be a one day spike, what the new average will be. I mean, according to DeWine, we're looking at an extra 700 or so a day. Well, hopefully the, the number we get today will stand as the all-time record, and this thing will get under control. What will be depressing is if we get this artificial surge today because they're pulling all these in, and then in a few weeks we top that. So we'll have to see how it goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
What percentage of Ohio school kids, including Laura Johnston's, are doing their learning from home this month? It's way up, right, Jane? Everybody's afraid of the Thanksgiving holiday surge, which we're really not seeing quite yet. Yeah, 44% of Ohio students are are in a remote learning model as of December 3rd, uh, which the, the State Department of Education updates this regularly. They keep track of the models week by week. That's about 30% of the districts. And just for comparison, if you look back to October, only 12% of the districts were were staying remote. And at that time, you know, like 57% of the districts were were, were planning a five-day return to, to school. So, uh, you know, things change are changing rapidly and constantly. I mean, after the Thanksgiving break, many school districts pivoted to a remote model like, like Laura's to prevent the spread of the coronavirus from the holidays. So about 25% of students are currently in a hybrid model with about 29% in five-day in-person instruction. So, you know, the Ohio Education Association came out with um, a recommendation on Monday that that districts stay in this remote learning for the for the 14 days after Christmas, which which would allow like a reset from from any cases because of the you know the the holiday spikes that that are expected. So, as we know, I think the Cuyahoga County Stay at Home Advisory recommends that schools move to remote learning after. Well, they did recommend it after the Thanksgiving break. So Laura Johnston has done a wonderful job expressing the anxiety and frustration of the working mom with school kids at home. We've actually heard from people who listen saying they appreciate her representing that side. So Laura Johnston, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I mean, I get what they're saying, and and it makes a lot of sense. I, I think not a day goes by at this point that I'm not getting an email from our school district saying that a staff member or another kid has tested positive. And at this point, we've been remote. This is the second week in a row. So um, it's not like our kids are being exposed to that person in class, but they still are, are letting us know. Um, it's just, it's a frustrating time to be a kid and to be a parent. And it's frustrating to see people in bars and restaurants sitting there without a mask and they're allowed to be there, but our kids are staring at a screen all day. I mean, hopefully you're not going to hear it, but my kid is practicing his recorder on Zoom downstairs. So, <laughs> I mean, this is, uh, it's tough. And, um, and there was an AP story we posted yesterday that said that kids are failing school at two to three times the regular rate. Some kids aren't, aren't, logging in at all. And so we just have to acknowledge what we're doing to this cohort of kids that is well, not going I, to school. I posed a question on my, my subtext account this morning asking if there's some historical event we could use to try and predict the long-term effects on kids. I use my dad as an example. He grew up in the Depression and it never left him. The guy was the tightest tightwad I've ever seen. And even though he was a very successful business guy, he that never left. That's he, the the fear of not having enough was with him for his entire life. And I wonder about the people that were in the crux of the nuclear age when you know every school kid was doing the the, the nuclear exercises to take cover in case of a nuclear explosion. 
did that fear and anxiety from that carry through from their lives? It's, it's hard to see. You keep reading kids are sad, that there's a lot of sadness. You keep reading about the failure of school, that it's going to be a lost generation. They're all going to be, you know, dopier than the previous and following generations. Be nice to try and figure out where those weaknesses are, and then maybe you could do something about them. Well, and Jane had a really good comparison, too. She brought up, um, Jane Cahoon brought up the polio age. And I was thinking about that this morning. And that is that idea of like, you don't know who has it. You don't know how kids get sick. But polio was concentrated in kids. And it's kind of the opposite in COVID that we're just, kids aren't getting as sick. But um, I, I don't I don't know how this compares to those past times. But let's face it, you're frustrated and you have anxiety about doing all the things you have to do. And kids are pretty sensitive to that. So if every kid is in a household where everybody's pushed to the max and everybody's sad about the holidays, it it weighs on them. I mean, you know, my dad was a kid in the Depression. It wasn't like he was a, a wage earner in the Depression. But man, oh, man, he worried about money his entire life. My, I mean, my siblings and I would talk or just marvel at it because he, he didn't hurt for money as an adult. But man, oh, man. Uh, you know, just when he when he would give you an allowance, you'd have to pry it out of his fingers. I mean, it was just he hated to let it go. That was all absorbed from his mom and dad who were coping with the difficulties of the Depression. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this generation carries this forward. I imagine they'll be talking about COVID for the next five decades, like we talked about the 1918 flu. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Ohio making it easier for everyone to get access to all the data the state collects and processes, data that belongs to all of us to begin with? Laura Johnston, this was a nice surprise yesterday because we're all about transparency here at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We are, and we like some good news. So this is good news. The government wants to make information more accessible and transparent. DataOhio.gov rolled out as part of the state's ongoing Innovate Ohio project. Uh, It contains more than 200 data sets. And so Lieutenant Governor John Houston got to introduce this on Monday at the DeWine briefing. Uh, State officials envision legislators, state policy staff, think tanks, journalists, and other members of the public being able to use this information to inform their research. And then Governor DeWine said he hopes that the website eventually will include data showing the number of COVID-19 vaccine doses available and administered. And I know we've given um, the health boards lots of, of, you know, questions about their transparency over this, but I because do, they have none, right. they've been terrible, <laughs> right? But the DeWine administration is trying to put stuff out there. If you go to their coronavirus uh, webpage, they've got all sorts of dashboards. So um, this was a welcome, welcome bit of news yesterday. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear that they're going to try to do transparency with the the vaccine. We we actually talked about this, I think, last week about the desperate need for people to believe in that system. And the only way they're going to believe is if there's a methodical approach to who gets it first and who gets it second. And it sounds like they're going to try to do that. So score one for transparency. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Despite complaints from some lawmakers, leaders in the Ohio legislature did not require mask wearing in the lame duck session. So how many legislators how now have COVID-19? Jane Cahoon, this is kind of a disaster because they're not communicating it. We just talked about transparency. Bob Cup is not being transparent and it sounds like it's spreading. 
Yeah. So I don't know if you remember this, but last week I made a rather snarky remark when we were talking about the possibility of DeWine's uh, veto being overridden, where I said, well, gee, they don't require masks in the in the House. So I wonder if, uh, you know, too many legislators will be sick to to muster the number that they need to override it. So sadly, that's getting closer to being a reality. We've, we've got three members newly testing positive for, for COVID. And uh, I, also, the, you know, the House does not have any provision for virtual meetings or virtual testimony. So they're all, they're all in person. And as I said, they don't require masks, although many lawmakers do wear masks. But anyway, three House members, that's uh, two Republicans and a Democrat, who attended last week's lame duck session, and they all sit on the Finance Committee, have tested positive for the coronavirus. And uh, another lawmaker said he's being tested after he showed some cold-like symptoms. But we we tried to get an answer from Cup's office on this, but it wasn't until the end of the day on Monday when we finally got a statement from his spokeswoman who said, you know, despite these positive tests, there's not going to be any change to this week's session schedule. And she said, uh, over the last several days, two members of our caucus have tested positive and it is not believed this is a result of exposure at the state house. I don't know how they yeah, can say just that. Make I that mean, up. you know, it's a that's like hospitals. Quarantined. That's like yeah. the hospitals saying that our our people aren't getting it at the hospital. They're going home and being very irresponsible and getting it home. It's you know, throw the right, flag. Right. You're getting it at the legislature. They're not wearing right. masks. And the House Minority Leader Amelia Sykes, who leads the Democrats, uh, she she sent an email to staff saying, you know, there's been no communication from the Speaker's office about these positive tests. They're like hearing through the grapevine or from colleagues. And and uh, she she issued a formal statement later in the day saying, you know, the session really should be canceled for safety reasons. And she said, at the very least, they could pretend to care about the health, safety, and well-being of those who enter the state's legislative halls and share information with everyone who's affected in a timely manner. You know, for comparison, in uh, both, I believe, Arizona and Michigan, where Rudy Giuliani was, uh, you know, visiting to uh, trump up election, you know, conspiracy theories, uh, not wearing a mask, and he later tested positive. Those legislatures, I believe, have have canceled some some sessions. Wouldn't there be a delicious irony if they, so many people got it that they didn't have the votes to override the veto by Mike DeWine of the bill to strip away his COVID powers? Right, I mean, right. wouldn't that be just the best irony that these bozos who are, who are trying to stop the governor from protecting Ohioans by stripping his powers all get it because they're throwing caution to the wind and not wearing masks? The sad right. thing is they have some stuff to do. They um, have you know, a lot of consequential legislation, including I mean, that House Bill 6 uh, repeal or tweak or whatever they're going to do with that. And they've got a criminal sentencing reform bill. They've got the uh, school funding bill that Matt yeah, Poland is trying funding. to block. And, and, and they got a capital uh, projects bill and yeah. uh, sports betting. You know, there, there's there's all kinds of things that they plan to deal with, not to mention the, the sneaky stuff that they plan to to slip in there. It's bizarre that they won't allow it. They don't have a mechanism for virtual. Every every city council and school board has figured that out. Why wouldn't they I know. allow and, people um, to participate virtually? 
people, you know, from the public or from interest groups who want to weigh in on some of this legislation, you know, they've been grumbling about that. They don't want to go there and subject themselves to, you know, possibly getting exposed. Um, Our reporters, I don't want them going to these sessions in person. You know? No, we, I mean, we're not. I mean, we're crazy. protecting our staff, even if the legislature won't. We should point out that our favorite Fruit Loop legislator, John Becker, is not saying he has the coronavirus, but man, the symptoms he's describing oh, he has gosh. certainly sound. This is the guy that wants to impeach the governor because of his coronavirus restrictions. It sounds like he got pretty sick. Yeah, yeah he posted on social media about having this mystery fever. And, you know, he proceeded to list all of his symptoms, which, you know, sounded like a classic COVID patient. But, you know, I'm apparently he's not been tested for that. So uh, who knows if he had it or not. not. He won't get tested because he doesn't want to admit (laughs) I'm trying to impeach the governor from protecting Ohioans like me from the coronavirus. And now I have the coronavirus. I mean, it's just been a fascinating run of people with big mouths, pretending that masks and things are not unnecessary, getting sick. I mean, Rudy Giuliani being the latest big example. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What record will Ohio State set if it plays and beats Michigan this week? And what are some of the other cool facts about this storied rivalry? Laura Johnson, we don't often talk about sports, but it is Michigan week unless the coronavirus cancels it. And Ohio State has frankly owned the team up north for a long time now. So there's some some big records coming, which is unusual for a storied rivalry. You would think all the records have been set. Right. Um, Ohio State has never won nine in a row against Michigan. So they're going to be trying to do that on Saturday. This is the 117th meeting between these Big Ten rivals. And their football rivalry began in 1897. That was before the league took on the Big Ten name, before OSU was a member. And actually, overall, Michigan leads the series 58 52 6. And that includes a 2010 game that was later vacated by the NCAA because of a rules violation by Ohio State. But you're right. Ohio State has been on a roll for much of my recent memory. And uh, Ryan Day, the coach for Ohio State on Saturday, could become the second undefeated coach in the history of the rivalry with multiple wins on his record. So far, only Urban Meyer has an undefeated record of 7 0 beyond three one and oh coaches. And I'm just going to tell you all of this stats that I've just rhymed off. Uh, I didn't know any of them before I read Rich Exner's very informative pieces on the Ohio State Michigan rivalry. So Rich is a, always a font of data. And he's a big fan. So this is near and dear to his heart. Good stuff. It'll be interesting to see if that game gets played um, because uh, Michigan has had some coronavirus problems. You're listening to this week in the CLE. After months of breaking records, what suddenly has happened to torpedo Ohio's gambling revenue in recent weeks? Jane Coon, we were all kind of astounded by the months of records being broken at the casinos because you're thinking, who's going to the casino? You're going to get coronavirus. (laughs) There were no outbreaks that seemed to come from them, but all of a sudden their revenue is dried up. What's the main cause? Well, I guess you could blame the 10 p.m. curfew. It, it seems to be having a real impact on the gambling revenue. The business was down really sharply in November uh, as the coronavirus cases spiked. It, it had been a record string for uh, for these 11 facilities across the state. But gambling revenue in November was $133.4 million, down 17% 
from November a year ago. As we said, the casinos and racinos were closed from like mid-March through mid-June, and then they they reopened, and all of a sudden, yeah, they were reporting these record numbers. But then in November, you know, that's when Governor Mike DeWine started this this curfew, and they in fact have closed uh, during during those hours, even though the curfew is for people, not for businesses. But but they have closed at 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 10 p.m. So, so we're seeing that. And um, uh, so despite, you know, the closings and then the, the surge in, in the uh, revenue and now down sharply for the whole year, it's, it's a loss. You know, it's um, that it's the whole, the, the year results are going to be down way down. You know, we haven't seen, as I mentioned, any any evidence that the casinos are causing breakouts and super spreading events. And you've got to wonder if the precautions they've taken, because there's so much money on the line, which is a lot of money that's gambled in Ohio, if they've just done everything right to separate people and, and keep things sanitary, because you are bringing lots of people from different walks of life together into an indoor space, which, you know, most people are avoiding because they don't want to get the coronavirus. But something must be working at the racinos and the casinos because the health departments have not ever mentioned them. They mentioned yeah, all the other I mean, I'm not a gambler, so I have no, you know, I have not observed any of this, but they must be socially distancing people well and people must be adhering to the mask rule. Um you know, as we know, this virus is more, I think, transmitted through the air than it is, you know, on surfaces. But I'm sure they're sanitizing the surfaces as well. They said they were going to be taking all these measures. So, um, but, you know, it's too bad for them that now we've got this curfew. I just wonder if there are lessons from them, whatever they're doing, that you could spread to other walks of life, because it does seem to be to be working. So I don't know. We'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the story of the Cleveland developer who got into such gambling trouble that he embezzled almost a million dollars from the Eastside Market Project? Lord Johnson, this is big money. We read about embezzling and scams all the time. But when you start getting up near a million bucks, that's that's big, big time. I mean, you go to prison for a long time for that if you get convicted. And it all comes down to a gambling habit, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and to make this story even sadder, it has to do with a... A much-needed grocery store from a city landmark in a uh, food desert area. So Arthur Fain, who is 58, faces nine counts of wire fraud from an indictment that a grand jury in Toledo handed up. Uh, prosecutors say Fain stole more than $885,000. This was intended for a construction management contractor and an audiovisual technology installation subcontractor, people that were working on this new grocery store. And his company used them as an intermediary for payments by the nonprofit behind the project. So, and this is all because of a gambling habit. The FBI says he was using his company's money to gamble and he used, lose, lost, sorry, a large amount of money between 2016 and 2018. The, the seven page indictment doesn't actually name the project, but Eric Heisig, who's our real estate reporter and formerly federal courts reporter, said this matches the description of the Eastside Market Grocery Store at 105th Street and St. Clair Avenue in Glenville. And this nonprofit called Northeast Ohio Neighborhood Health Services was transforming transforming this old market 
like a, it was previously a vendor market, like the West Side market, into a grocery store. This was a six point seven million dollar project, and this is the first full service grocery store um, in years. So they're still working on it. They plan to add a wellness center, a community room and other services. But yeah, this is a huge amount of money to steal from a very worthy project. So what happens? I mean, they're not going to get that back. Even if the guy is ordered to do restitution, you take a million dollars out of a six, seven million dollar project. Who makes that up? Has anybody talked yet about what this does to the the deadlines for the project? No, nobody really commented to Eric. He got a lot of his information from the court records and they've just what this guy did, apparently did according to the prosecutors was he falsified invoices to this nonprofit and he kind of took the money in between he even had a scam set up where people were wiring money to his wife's bank account according to the prosecutors so it sounds like it was pretty involved and he had a bad losing streak and just lost all of this money in gambling okay you're listening to this week on the CLE all right, Laura Johnson, I'm putting you on the spot here. You called last night to say you wanted to change the front page. So let's talk about the story you were excited about. What are some Christian schools in Toledo arguing in federal court about Toledo's effort to shut them down for the coronavirus? So three Christian schools in Toledo are suing over the Lucas County Board of Health, which I didn't realize in November had shut down schools for grades 7 through 12 and said K through 6 can go to school, grades 7 through 12 cannot. And so they are saying that this is impinging on the um, freedom of religion, that their kids should be allowed to go to school and get this kind of religious instruction as well as everything else, especially when other things are open. And they mentioned specifically casinos, uh, restaurants, bars, um, non-necessary, non-essential services in their eyes. And so I think, I think this case is fascinating because it pits schools against business. And this state, you know, DeWine has said schools, it's up to schools if they want to close and that's a local decision, but it, it's a tough decision for these, these local health boards to make when he's not shutting down anything else. How much does the religion argument play into this? The recent We had the recent Supreme Court ruling that the First Amendment right to practice religion trumps the, the health orders, but schools are different. That's, that's education, not worship. Are they making a play on the, the religious freedom argument, or is this purely you're depriving us of the ability to educate children? No, they're using the religious freedom argument. And what's interesting is, it's not just religious schools, right? It's it's all schools. So you don't have a local school board that's suing its own health board, but you have these private entities that are taking on the, the health board in this case. And maybe they see the religion as the like pry bar to to get this this lawsuit, you know, to be taken seriously. I don't know. I think it's a really interesting idea. And, you know, Mike DeWine has been very careful this entire time to say, I am not shutting down places of worship. Even in the spring, he did not shut them down. Yeah. But this, again, this is a school. It's not a place of worship. You could argue they have religion classes or something, but it is, it is somewhat different. But this is a challenge. What's fascinating about this is after the 1918 pandemic, there were all sorts of laws passed so that we could protect people in future pandemics. And all of these lawsuits are an assault on what society saw as the corrective measures for pandemics. And so if, if the courts rule, yeah, you're violating their constitutional rights. What is a community to do when you're when you're trying to stop people from 
getting sick. I mean, I guess I guess you just say pandemics will sweep through society and they'll make a lot of people sick and they'll make a lot of people die. And there's nothing we can do about it to protect each other. I don't know. Ask the Republicans in the state legislature who are trying to undo everything DeWine has done. I mean, there are a whole lot of people that are saying you can't do this to us. You can't take away our freedoms. There are people that are still mad that they have to wear masks. And that's the kind of society that apparently we are living in, in at least in Ohio. But um, I think this this school issue, it'll be interesting to see if anybody joins on and if this gets replicated in other courts. They're looking for immediate relief, right? They're looking for a temporary restraining order because normally federal cases take a while to go through. And by the time this went through, the pandemic would be over. But they want they want a judge to say, stop this now pending the litigation. Yeah, I'm actually interested. It's interesting it took this long because this went into effect November 25th. So that was right before Thanksgiving. You would think that they if they were planning to, I mean, maybe they didn't know it was coming, but that they would have been faster on the uptake if they were going to do this because it's been two more than two weeks. All right. Well, that extra story spares you from having to talk about the elf on the shelf. I was looking you're forward listening. to talking about elf on the shelf. <laughs> I was not. You're, look, <laughs> you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for another episode of the podcast. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. 